Now, let's talk about the performances. Oh, yes. I don't think there's any good performances in this show. I hate everyone. Everybody sucks. Boo. Bad singers. Bad singers. <laughs> <laughs> this is the opposite is true. I, mm -hmm. I think I love everyone in this show. There's some incredible performances in this show. And I think, you know what? It's hard. There are a lot of a lot of kind of cameo roles in this show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? We see a lot of a lot of Leo, a lot of Lucille, a few of some other people, but people with, you know, two and three lines in this cast are still uh strong in finding ways to stand out in memorable ways. Yeah. That I thought uh was really impressive and rare. Mm -hmm. Special shout outs before we talk about uh Brent Carver and Carolee Carmelo specifically. I have written down that the opening soloist who sings um, The Old Red Hills of Home at the very start of the show yeah. sounds incredible to me. Man, yeah. it's what a voice. Just sounds awesome. As well, Rufus Bonds Jr. Oh, yeah. I had him written down, too. Plays Jim Conley. Mm -hmm. Jeez, mm -hmm. that's an incredible performance. Yeah. Really, really nice stuff. Those are, those are two people I singled out as really worth a watch, worth a listen. Go pick up the soundtrack. Listen specifically for both the opening soloist and Rufus Bonds Jr., who plays Jim Conley, get really big features, and they are excellent. Mm -hmm. I do have one more person I want to single out. Yes. Uh, who I thought was just um, very endearing in her short time alive on the stage. <laughs> Christy Carlson Romano. Yay! Plays little Mary Fagan in a delightful... But hold on, Elliot, Elliot, Elliot. That, that can't be possible. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're stealing my, my thunder. Yes. Sorry, no, no, I'm it's sorry, okay. Go, go, go. I understand. It's, it's, it, you might even say it's Kim Possible. It's Kim Possible! It's <laughs> <laughs> yes, Christy Carlson Romano, famous for not only portraying Ren in Even Stevens mm -hmm. and voicing the titular character in Kim Possible, but who also... Perhaps most entertainingly, at the age of 12, sang Chiquita Banana in a Woody Allen film called Everyone Says I Love You. It's on YouTube. I watched it a few hours ago. It's very appropriative. It's very white girl tries to do uh, Latin. Oh, no. And um, it's rough, but... I think still worth the watch. Very good. Uh, yeah. Yes. So that's my personal endorsement of Christy Carlson Romano. I was watching a YouTube video. I think it was the the clips. Um, like one of the like the sizzle reel or something. A sizzle reel. That's it. And it was like very clearly a VHS. Yeah. Um. So I was watching it, and I'm like, oh, I think that's Christy Carlson Romano. And I scroll <laughs> down. And I love reading comments. We all know this. And one of the comments says, hey, I recognize that little girl. And I'm like, me too. But then I realized that it was, in fact, Christy Carlson Romano who commented that on the YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> and then the person who posted the video was like, thank you for watching. You were great in this production or something like that. And I was like, is this what her life is now? Like, she watches her own clips of herself in parade and comments. Did you go and check some, some even Stevens or some Kim possible videos to see if she was commenting on those as well? <laughs> I'll do that next. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> Anyways, join us next week for our guest, Christy Carlson Romano. <laughs> <laughs> we should have called her. Friend. We really should have called her because I feel like if anyone's going to talk about this show, 
it might be her. Right? She just seemed so excited about it in the comments. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a specific person um, that we need to talk about here. Yeah. A Canadian actor, performer that Elliot mentioned a little earlier, but I think now would be a great time to bring up his performance in this play. Brent Carver is a Canadian legend. There's no question of that. Um, Star of both Kiss of the Spider-Woman and this on Broadway, as well as many incredible performances across Canada, including like 200 seasons at the Stratford Festival or something. And, you know, he uh, he passed away this summer, and that's a, that's a huge drag. That's really sad. I didn't have any personal connection with him. I hadn't had the honor of working with him. But, uh, but Elliot, you did. I got a tiny little taste, and I'm... I'm so, so grateful for it. Was he incredible? He was, and he was very quiet. He was very reserved. Um, so not the stereotypical actor. Yep. And just a great listener. He would sit kind of in the corner of our rehearsal room and just take things in and think. That was kind of his set point, and he was so, so kind and generous. And I remember I was terrified because I knew he was going to be coming to Opera Nuova where I was working on the show. And we were there and it was our first table read. I had come a couple days late to the program. So I didn't know anyone. And the first thing we were doing was reading the entire script of Parade Cold. And you're reading Leo Frank for the yep. the original Leo Frank, who is a Canadian icon. And we hadn't been introduced. And I I don't remember if he came in in the middle of the first act or if he was just sitting silently beside our director the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was truly like thinking, okay, I'm <laughs> I'm about to read Parade, which I've wanted to do for since what feels like the dawn of time is probably five years. <laughs> <laughs> and across the room is Brent Carver and oh God, just read the words in front of you. <laughs> Don't yeah. think about what he's thinking right now. Uh, but he couldn't have been a more generous actor and collaborator. And I still hold dearly my... Um, I kept my notes from all of our table work and sessions on that show. Mm-hmm. Did he provide insight into table work? He did. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of sessions that were just me and we were double cast, me and uh, the other Leo and the two Lucilles and Brent and our music director and director. And uh, yeah, he shed so much light onto the show and and insight into uh, Leo and Lucille's relationship. And he. He got it, you know? He just, he understood the show, as he should, you know, Frank Carver. (laughs) It was interesting because having him there, all of the theater faculty that were working at the program were so excited that he was there. And Mm -hmm. I remember our fight director was saying at one point, like, you know, Brent's one of the best swordsmen I've ever seen on stage. What? Like, what can't he do? Yeah, apparently his stage work, fencing-wise and with uh, swords, was just unmatched even at Stratford. Wow. An incredible A-plus human. Incredible. Um, I love him in this. Oh, yeah. I think he's fantastic. It hits me especially because, like I mentioned at the start of this podcast, I grew up listening to this soundtrack. I've had this soundtrack close to my heart since I was a teenager. And so, and he's got kind of a distinctive voice as well, kind of a distinctive singing voice. Mm-hmm. So to be able to connect this voice that I've been hearing in my head for a long time with this Canadian legend who I've heard my peers talk about. Mm-hmm. And everyone, everyone has just the, says exactly what Elliot just said. Just a incredible, generous, quiet, professional, excellent human being. It feels very cool to be able to connect those two things and to see him on stage and be like, freaking Canadian boy making good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just crushing it left and right all over that stage. 
there's um a lot to be said about that sort of cerebral quality it sounds like he had um in the room yeah and i think that really lends itself well to this type of work same with spider woman i think that's why it was so successful why he did such a good job i should say yep in those two roles but i just did i did write brent carver in a jail cell again like (laughs) (laughs) you know and what two two years after spider woman was it the um the broadway run of spider woman was 93 to 95 okay 900 performances. So this is a fair bit after that already. Right. That said, if we think about the development process, I think, and Brent Carver stayed with Spider-Woman for its whole run, I think. Yep. They would have started developing Parade soon after that. Mm-hmm. It was uh, 96, I believe, was the first uh, the first workshop. And he was attached pretty much from the beginning. So they would have moved into developing this. Daphne, sorry, this is a this is a Spider-Woman moment. This is this is all going to get cut. Yeah. It's going to get cut so hard all I don't even this, know what to say. Chop it. <laughs> <just>. <laughs> okay, so we all can agree that Brent Carver is like 10 out of 10, 12 out of 10. Outstanding. And we have our Canadian mm-hmm. pride as well. So. Well earned in this case. I would give him 12 out of 10 even if he wasn't Canadian, and I'm proud to be able to claim him as one of ours. True. Now, can we talk about Carolee Carmelo and and her wig? <laughs> I didn't realize the wig from the um, from the bootleg we were watching because the bootleg was such poor quality. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize until I watched that sizzle reel. Yep. And I was like, oh, look at that. That's a big wig. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big wig. Big wig. <laughs> There's some bumpets all around that wig. No, I, I, I only joke because I've called out her wig in every show that we've talked on Carly Carmelo cast so the podcast that discusses Carly Carmelo (laughs) and she's been in a lot of shows that uh that fit the bill I believe this is only her second that we've discussed where we discussed her before in Lestat Mm -hmm. but I think we're gonna be able to get her for a few more yeah we're gonna get her for a few more absolutely maybe she's the reason no I'm just (laughs) she is a hundred percent not the reason we love her don't we I I love her in this I think Carly Carmelo is one of the best singers of her generation Mm -hmm. she's got an incredible voice i didn't realize she was in uh elegies with william finn's elegies and i love her even more for that because that's one of my favorite pieces of all time and i think she's incredible in this i think her singing you don't know this man maybe once again it's because i've been listening to this musical since i was a teenager but just that sound that that effortless enormous sound remains like a standard that i want to hear out of performers yeah i just love her i i feel like she has this this ability to not think about how she sounds. Yeah. Like she doesn't need to worry about that. Like, so it, it allows her to go to the next level of her performance because she's not like, oh, are these notes going to be there for me? She's like, no, they're there for me. So I'll just do the rest of the work, the meat of the work, which is the storytelling portion. And I think other people who have tried to do this role, Laura Benanti are hyper concerned and aware of what they're doing vocally on every note so much so that they cannot do the rest of the work. And I think in that Carolee Carmelo is really unparalleled um, from that time, especially. Mm -hmm. So Elliot Lazar, in the past, when you used to live in Winnipeg, you were my go-to person for, I want to talk about the nuances, the minute nuances of how a singer is singing, what their voice is like, what their vocal placement might be. You were the person I would go to if I wanted to nerd out. Always. <laughs> what do you think of Carolee Carmelo's voice? I It baffles me. <laughs> I love it. 
every every single time I listen, I am undone. It's <laughs> right, right? She, it's crazy, and it blows my mind too. Because and and I might be incorrect, but I think she. I think she went to school for business. That's correct. I just looked this up last night. Yep. That is so rude. That is so rude. Like she just like started working professionally. Some of the best singers in that generation on Broadway, her and I believe Kate Baldwin too, I think might not have gone to school for theater. And yeah, her voice, it, there's this effortless kind of fluidity yes. between her uh, registers that everything kind of exists on this great open canvas that she can paint with whatever colors she wants. And you hear it all over the score. And I find myself listening to her and thinking, is that belted? Is that mixed? Is that... Yes. Is that just really resonant head voice? Like No, it's what? that thing that's past that. It's past concerns of placement. It's a holistic uh, approach to singing, which is what I think, uh, what I think we all should strive toward, really. Like, yeah. she just... She she can do it all and she's opened up her instrument to the point where she can trust it. And like Jillian said, just do the work of telling the story. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what that comes from. I uh, I have a feeling it might be less rooted in specific vocal like singing study and maybe in voice for the actor. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where a lot of those techniques open up the voice in that kind of broad way that isn't boxed in by ideas of registers and... Like maybe even her lack of formal study of vocal technique at the post-secondary level means that she's less concerned with hyper-managing her voice. Absolutely. That could very well be it. I just, speaking from my own experience, from entering into a post-secondary study in voice versus like just taking classes like with a teacher here it changed the way I sing and not necessarily in a good way and so it's very likely that business school did not interfere with her vocal abilities <laughs> I just love her ability just to, to harp on her for one more second so many people so many performers it feels like when they're getting more emotionally vulnerable disengage their voice and their voice mechanism in their diaphragm to um to kind of get this emotional honesty and she just seems to engage more. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, even when she's at the bottom of her range, I keep coming back to you don't know this man specifically, because it's just, mm-hmm. I cry when I hear her sing it. And even in the quietest moments, just you can hear that air spinning rather than disengaging. It's like she's belting very quietly. <laughs> I want to learn to do that. Right? And she's very confident. Yeah. And there's a there's a certain and this comes with I think experience, but I think the best actors know that they don't have anything to prove in their performance. Mm-hmm. Right? They're not trying to not get fired or get a good review. They're just in the story being the person they're supposed to be, trying to get the thing they want to get. And Carly Carmella watching her in this, she's so grounded and so firm. Uh, in what she wants and needs and does it in such a simple and economical way yep. that, you know, there's no, I don't sense any like actor desperation from her. <laughs> she doesn't have any of that, which is amazing. It's like her superpower. Like, I think it's fair to say if there's any problems with this show, it's not the performances and it's definitely not the nucleus of this piece, which is Brent Carver and Carolee Carmelo. 100%. Mm-hmm. You couldn't pick a better cast. So all this to say... Out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are we giving these performances? Well, I literally just said you can't pick a better cast, so I think i got to give it 10. 12. Like, like <laughs> who in this, who who was active in this time would you have cast instead? You know what mm. I mean? Even someone like Rufus Bonds Jr., who I looked up and I was like, he hasn't really done much since then, turns it out Ugh. in a, an enormous way. Yeah. 
It's not that he hasn't done much since then. He's had a, it's actually very fascinating. He's had an incredible career living on like Lion King tours. Oh, cool. Okay. Oh. I respect that. Which is fantastic. It just, it seems like he's been a great journeyman. I would kill to have a career like that. It's a fantastic career. Mm-hmm. This is one of the only roles he originated. That's so cool though. What about you guys? For me, I mean, I think it's, I think it's gotta be a 10. Right? <laughs> right? I can think of other people I'd love to see. You know, I saw, for example, that uh, Andrea Burns was the Lucille on the mm. first tour. And I thought, oh, God, what what I wouldn't give to see what she did with that role. But even then, I don't... It wouldn't have been better than Carolee, just different. Yeah. Yeah, just different. Yeah, I'm a 10. I love them all. And, and e- like, the ensemble singing is remarkable. I don't have a complaint at all. So join us next week on Carmelo Cast, where we will discuss Adam's family and Mamma Mia years five through seven. <laughs> Carla Carmelo's had such an interesting career. It's so fascinating. Let's talk about the Tonys. Oh, you guys, I'm having fun. Me too. <laughs> I just feel bad for Daphne because I'm like, oh, we're almost at two hours. Yay, have fun. I know. I'm sorry, Daphne. <laughs> this is going to be a two-parter. What a fascinating year this was for Broadway. So this is the big elephant in the room okay. that I think has clouded all of what Parade could be. Yep. And that is called Ragtime. Yes. Mm. I'm glad you said that because this will also lead into the, the other thing we haven't talked about yet that's very significant, which is the live event involvement. Great. So Ragtime opened in, I think, January of 98. Yep. And then we didn't see Parade until the end of that calendar year. Yep. So they were quite far apart. However, Ragtime was the first one. Yep. <laughs> and it it also is in a similar-ish time period, like within the same decade. Like it's 10 years apart, I think. And one is in the North and one is in the South. Mm-hmm. They both deal with serious social issues. They're not fun song and dance musicals. If you're ta- if you're making broad categorizations, um, obviously Parade and Ragtime are very different in a lot of ways. But oh, if you're yeah. making broad categorizations, they are very similar as far as general tone and content. Mm-hmm. And musically, they're both very similar. Mm-hmm. So much so that the composers of Ragtime, Aaron's and Flaherty, I would say are like the first modern Broadway composers, them and William Finn. Yeah. And I would say we're a huge influence on Jason Robert Brown. Mm-hmm. Is that a hot take? I think it's safe to speculate. Mm-hmm. So Parade, or rather Ragtime, is a year before this, did you say? Uh, like 10 or 11 months, I think, before. Jeez. And they're both co-produced by Canadian theater enterprise Live Ent. Garth Drabinsky's Live Ent Entertainment. Not friend of the podcast. Not friend of the podcast. <laughs> Garth Drabinsky, we're frustrated with you. Lots of our friends and colleagues have lost money because of you. <laughs> That's such a funny... I'm frustrated with Garth Drabinsky. <laughs> Do we have our first enemy of the podcast? First, first enemy. enemy of the podcast. That's hardly a hot take. Enemy of the podcast. So Livent was a commercial theater production company born out of Cineplex Odeon, I think. It was born out of movie theaters. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. And it was the one of the first actual commercial theater companies not dedicated to a specific show in the world. I think at the very least in North America. It was based in Toronto and produced these enormous musicals that were huge successes. 
one of their first big early successes was bringing Phantom of the Opera to Canada with Colm, Colm Wilkinson, and that oh. was an enormous success. Yes. And they became involved with developing a lot of really fantastic musicals in Canada that would go on to run on Broadway and be a huge success. Notably, Kiss of the Spider Woman, the revival, the 1994 revival of Showboat, Ragtime, and this was the last one. This is important. This was the last one because as this was running, Live End pulled out from the production as soon as it opened and the initial reviews dropped and the initial reviews weren't incredibly positive. They pulled out of the production as they had just discovered accounting irregularities and were about to file for bankruptcy protection. <sighs> they filed for bankruptcy protection. All of their investors pulled out. Their stock prices plummeted because they were a commercial theater agency. Mm-hmm. And Garth Rubinsky and the other higher up in Live End went to jail for fraud. Yep. It was the end of the golden age of Canadian theater, mm-hmm. an era that a lot of our mentors and friends were born out of. Mm-hmm. And it is, I think, safe to say, had an enormous impact, especially on Canadian theater, but on North American theater in general, because Live Ent were pretty significant players in Broadway throughout the 90s. Oof. So as we're discussing why this show closed, and it kind of escaped you by now, we've given... Not, not no very low ratings and some of the highest ratings we've ever given on this podcast. A big reason is a major producer was shutting in the process of shutting down as the show was running. Ugh, it's so messy. It's really actually very tough to talk about because a lot of artists had been really doing some of their best work, including Brent Carver, mm-hmm. with the support of Livent. And it's really unfortunate that unscrupulous business practices ended up being behind a lot of that. Yeah. And I think... It's not something that I think any of us in Canada are especially proud of, but it's something that happened. Mm-hmm. The reason this ties into this is because Livent was a producing and developing partner behind both Ragtime and Parade. So it's not even like they were in competition financially. They're just in competition artistically and for audiences. And it's funny because, like, obviously we know these shows a little more intimately than, like, the average theater goer. Mm-hmm. So we're able to make the distinction between the two and go, these are completely different shows with completely different everything, <laughs> except costumes, because <laughs> that was, like, identical. And some set things. And great singers. I would say, like, equally great singers in the original Ragtime and the original Parade. Oh, absolutely. But mm-hmm. but the average, like, New York theater goer is like, well, I saw Ragtime, so, like... I don't think I need to see this other one that, like, kind of looks like ragtime. I'd really rather go see Lion King again. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's interesting, the uh, your favorite variety review, Jill, <laughs> yes. uh, includes, it, it uh, likens Parade to ragtime, but it says it's like ragtime with all, without all the nice characters and uplift. And that is the whole point of, the, of these mm-hmm. audiences are like, I don't want the sad, more sadness. Mm-hmm. They call it the feel-bad musical of the year. <laughs> and I, I almost agree. I almost agree, right? You come out of this show yeah. feeling like, oh. Yeah. Producer yeah. Daph can attest to me last night. I was kind of in a bad mood after watching this. And once again, this mm-hmm. is surprising. I love this musical. I was excited. And I am excited to cover it and talk about it. Like the second we finished watching it, you were like, let's put on a comedy, please, yeah. for the love of yeah. God. Yeah, Seriously. totally. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So the Tonys that year, Parade and and Ragtime were not in the same Tony year. But what else did we have? Do we know? We had Fosse, I think. The Civil War. Frank Wildhorn. Dear friend of the podcast, Frank Wildhorn, (laughs) whose shows are frustratingly successful, so we can't friggin' cover any of them. (laughs) 
we wanted to cover Dracula so bad for Halloween, but we couldn't. Mm -hmm. Someday we're going to cover uh, Wonderland, but I'm not sure what else we're even going to get to cover of his. I desperately want to talk about Frank Wildhorn. I think he's a... Well, you'll see. I don't want to risk my future career by saying what I think of Frank <laughs> Wildhorn right now. <laughs> so, uh, Peter Pan revival? Ninth or tenth revival? No, it was probably the third. Sure, but yeah, still. Yeah, like actually. Yeah. Um, revival and then Little Me was running as well. Right. So there were a... Footloose? Oh, Footloose! Oh, yeah. Footloose was playing. Mm -hmm. Footloose was the other big one With that Canadian year. slash Winnipegger. Jeremy Kushner. Jeremy, Jeremy Kushner. Kushner. Yep. Shout out. Hey. Dear friend of the podcast. I actually don't know. I don't know him at all. I'm sure he's a nice man. I'm sure he's a very <laughs> nice man. <Yeah. laughs> so there was a uh, like quite a variety of shows, it seems. Yeah. And Bossy won Best Musical. If you can mm -hmm. friggin' believe it. Parade <laughs> took both Best Original Score and Best Book, mm -hmm. but somehow managed to not take Best Musical and review, and nothing against Fosse as a show. Fosse's a very fun show. Mm -hmm. It's great to look at. Um, Bob Fosse deserves to be celebrated for his contributions to the Broadway aesthetic. Absolutely. But to win Best Musical at the Tonys over Parade. Uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, to be honest. I do have a theory. Ooh, let's hear it. I, I love the Tonys. They are my Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but I I also recognize that they are a huge a Tony Award for Best Musical can save the life of a musical. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Can save the life of a show, uh, much like a good review from New York Times can. In this case, Parade had already closed months before the Tonys happened. Yes. Uh it closed in I think February. Yep. And the piece of me that wants uh, a, a healthy Broadway, wants success for a show, and the Best Musical Award specifically is one that can uh, generate a lot of ticket sales. Right. And I think if you, if you can give it to a show that's still running, that's going to see a profit because of that, I think I think you should. Even though it's I, it's a little unfair, right? You want it to, it goes to the best show. But I think also in the interest of keeping things running. Give it to the show that needs it. Elliot, that's an excellent point. Parade had already closed and the best musical nom potentially got Fosse over a thousand performances. And with that, everyone who was working on it over a thousand performances. It's hard to argue with that. It's my little soapbox moment on the Tonys. <laughs> I really, I agree and I appreciate you saying that. I don't, I don't disagree at all, even though there's part of me that's like, Oh, keep the awards a pure expression of what is the best. Mm. Mm -hmm. Really, as shows, we all have to stick together and we all just, we all need to eat at the end of the day, right? Parade is sure not hurting for acclaim, even without a best musical win. Yeah. Mm. So in total, Parade was nominated for nine Tonys. And what did it win? Two? Two. Best original score and best book. Those are good ones to win. And well-deserved ones, yeah. If you're going to take two. Yeah. Yep. I was a little surprised they didn't win um, best, uh, I think it was orchestrations, right? Yeah, I agree. I think the orchestrations are excellent. Yeah. You guys, that year, Mary Testa was nominated for a turn in On the Town. Oh, yeah. Okay, did you know that William Shakespeare was also nominated that year for his production <laughs> of Twelfth Night? <laughs> With a score by Janine Tesori. Friend of, dear friend of the podcast. <laughs> We need to ask her what it was like working with him. Oh, I've heard he's a real. I was, gonna, I was just gonna say, when are they gonna do? When are they gonna do another show? Tesori and Tesori and Billy. What a team! <laughs> you know, he was tapped to write oh, the book for fun. But he couldn't do it. He was too busy writing sonnets. <laughs> he couldn't do it. He was yeah. too busy. <laughs> he had a few sonnets to get done. So. Yep. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so that's that Tony year and also some speculation as to why that might have had to do with, you know, what was running concurrently and what that might have to do with Parade's success. So now we come to the moment where we decide, the three of us, and then we tell the world whether we believe this should be a musical. This is a really tough one for this one. I'm not not even lying. Does anyone else want to go? <laughs> Elliot? You know, I'll, I'll weigh in. Selfishly, I want it to be a musical because I want to do this musical forever. Right. In between doing a comedy. Yeah. Because you can't, right? Um, but I was reading that part of Hal Prince's initial pitch for the show was that it was almost like an American opera. I believe... It is successful or would be successful as an opera mm. because this story, a lot doesn't happen, right? An opera is great for stories that are like low on action and high on feeling. Mm -hmm. I think a story this tragic would be really cathartic with like a fully operatic treatment. Fascinating. Uh, and I think doing it as a musical, I think musical theater, as diverse as it, as it is now, still has all this baggage of of kind of song and dance mm -hmm. and pomp and entertainment. And the moments in the show that don't work for me are the ones that lean into that, you know, where we suddenly hear a cakewalk or we're getting, you know, that kind of showy music. I mean, I think I'm I'm grateful that it's a musical. And if you would like to do this musical and you are listening, <laughs> I am currently available. Uh, <laughs> As we all are. Believe, believe it or not, we don't have work right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but no, I think it's a story that maybe wants to pick a lane between opera or being a uh, straight up play. I had never thought of that. And I, I think that's great. I really like I that idea. Yeah. Absolutely. I have a really hard time separating my love of this music and of sort of I think what they were trying to get at in terms of like morals or the snapshot of this this case I have a hard time separating that from the idea of like should this be a musical because I do think that in some ways it works well but is that because of this incredible score yep so I'm a bit conflicted too and I didn't think I would be I for sure thought I was like yeah 100% this should be a musical no questions asked but I don't know anymore there is no question in my mind that this story should continue to be told. Mm -hmm. It's a, a really, as we've said many times on this podcast um, over the course of this episode, a really tragic piece of history, a really important piece of history, and a cautionary tale about letting bias and prejudice get in the way of um, humanity. Mm -hmm. So there is no question in my mind that this show belongs on stage. And after considering this a little bit and hearing what both of you said, I think, yes, this should be a musical. The musical element gives us a chance to see Leo Frank and Lucille Frank a little more as people. Gives us a bit more insight into their humanity and not just the facts surrounding the case, which is a lot of what you will receive outside of theater right now. Mm, mm -hmm. I think it is using the music part of musical theater at its best. Yeah. And I especially agree with Elliot using the music part of opera at its best. And so I think, should this be a musical? Should this exist as something that uses music? to give us deeper insight into the characters? There's no question. Absolutely. I love it. Our final question on this podcast always is, is this a flop? Is this a total bop? Or do we need to make it stop? So what we mean by that is, 
Is this a flop, as in, for very legitimate reasons, this just didn't crack 100 performances, it just wasn't quite up to snuff? Is this a secret bop, as in, despite the fact that it didn't cross 100 performances, this is actually an incredible piece of art? Or do we need to make it stop, which means something went drastically wrong in the development of this show in some department, and that means it's gotta go. No one should ever think about this except in the context of very niche podcasts. (laughs) So... Is this a flop, a secret bop, or a make it stop? Jill, you first this time, because you haven't gone no, first yet. Don't you haven't make gone first me yet. Go no, first. No. I don't like going first. <laughs> I'm a collaborator by nature. I don't make me go first. <laughs> this is such an e- this is such an easy one though. Well, okay, but it's not because because it is a flop. Right? There's no question it flopped. And it is a bop. It's a hard bop. It's a it's. It has a solid place in the history of musical theater. Totally. So I'm like, it's a flop in that the production, now hearing Elliot talk about the revisions that it's undergone and how it's smaller scale, that's so much more appealing to me. And so I'm like, okay, that means that that production specifically was a a flop, but it is a total Mm. bop. So that's where what I think. Which is different from our the only other total bop that we've discussed in this podcast, Sideshow, which was actually just too weird to make it on Broadway, but the Mm -hmm. production was quite nice. Yeah. I I see what you're saying. This production has very significant problems, but Parade is Parade is Parade. Yep. And rightfully so, as we've discussed. So I think it's both. I think it can be both. Great. You're going to say both flop and total bop. Yep. Jill, you make a fair point. I'm going to disagree, though. I'm going to say total bop, full stop. Total bop, (laughs) full stop. I would like to think if I saw this on Broadway for the first time, I would have the same reaction I had when I was wandering around Garden City in North Winnipeg, listening to this on a CD player for the first time, which is just, Mm. this is incredible. I didn't know you could tell a story with music in a way that speaks to me and speaks to my sensibility as a young person who doesn't like rock music that much, like this, (laughs) so clearly. Um, So I think, I'd like to think if I saw it, I would still go... This is a total bop. I'm going to see it three more times before it closes in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so total bop, <laughs> full stop. Wop, wop. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot, where do you land in this discussion? Because you will be our tiebreaker. Mm, you know, I, while I, I agree with you, Jillian, that it uh, does not have to be one or the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It can be a flop that is a bop. And while I do not challenge the fact that this show did in fact flop on Broadway, financially speaking, Mm -hmm. and perhaps critically speaking to an extent, I agree with Paul. I think when the lights went down at the end of that show, if I had seen it live on Broadway, I would have leapt to my feet, clapped until my my hands bled, and talked to strangers on the subway on the way home <laughs> about how amazing it was for like a week. Gone and hand build it at the TKTS booth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would I would go to TKTS to see the costumed Leo Frank character who's handing out <laughs> flyers to parade, uh, brandishing Aww. little round glasses and a prop Aww. noose. And I would tell him about the show. <laughs> Of course, even joking about that reveals the actual problem with this show is that that kind of promotion for commercial theater, for the fact that it's running in commercial theater, is absurd. No, it just wouldn't work. Exactly. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, did we do it? Did we talk about it? I think we did. That's Parade. Everyone listen to it. It's incredible. I feel like I still have so much to learn about this show. Yeah. I, I hope to see it produced more. I think especially with the revisions Elliot's talking about, I wish more mm-hmm. major regionals would do it. Has anyone in Canada touched it? Other than, I know a musical stage company did in my research. I found I think, that out. Wasn't there a production in Vancouver? Probably. Or am I making that up? There was one in Boston last year. Here. Oh, oh really? last year? Yeah, just last year uh, a local company did it and it was very well received. So, you know, here's hoping that, you know, we can see it in, who knows, perhaps Winnipeg. Ooh. I would love that. I think it's an important piece. We In Canada, we run an almost entirely a not-for-profit theater model. And yes, people, that means still people need to buy tickets, but... For God's sake, why can't we do something as important as this that tells a story as important as this that's as beautiful as this? Mm-hmm. And I think there's been interest for a long time, too. Yes. I know it's been, it's it's a title that has popped up in conversations for many years. Also, I'm going to end the show on this note. The host of the 53rd Tony Awards, where Parade was nominated, was Chris Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Chris <laughs> and Rock. And I would pay good money to see that happen again. <laughs> so amazing what a choice Elliot this has been incredible thank you for coming on dude oh thank you thank you for having me I'm such a huge fan join us next week when we're going to talk about Alan Menken's Leap of Faith see you then hi everyone this is producer Daphne speaking Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Leap of Faith.